my dad was in the Philippines and he was training for the invasion. So what can I say? Yeah. Anything that got him home is, is very much fine with me. Welcome back to the Rad Lab Podcast. I am Dr. David Dan, and with me is Dale Enzer. This podcast is brought to you by the Tennessee Tech uh, University Chemistry Department. And combined, we have over 50 years of radiochemistry experience. And today we're going to be talking about um, the Oppenheimer movie that's coming out by Christopher Nolan. We are pretty excited about it. We actually just watched the trailer for it. And we've kind of seen this before. We've seen attempts at something like this before. And what are, what are your thoughts on it? Well, when I initially heard about the movie, I was, oh no, here we go again, <laughs> because I had seen, for example, the movie Fat Man, Little Boy with uh, Paul Newman, which um, did some things with the timeline that were not correct. And then there was the disaster of a, a made-for-TV uh, program called Manhattan, which turned into more like an evening soap opera. <laughs> so I, those types of things uh, in, the, in the past have led me to think, eh, I'm not really excited about a movie uh, such as this. However, at, at just watching the trailer, I noticed that a lot of the pictures that they had in the trailer uh, represented areas of New Mexico, which I was familiar with since I had spent some time at Los Alamos and also visited Trinity site. The movie definitely feels New Mexican. The landscape and everything feels like New Mexico, which is great. And I was actually in Los Alamos, uh, worked at working at Los Alamos when they started shooting it. And they even got extras from the lab. So there was a whole big process behind that. But which is kind of amazing. And this is kind of testament to the director, Christopher Nolan, which I've loved pretty much every one of his movies, and he usually does a good job of keeping things to um, historical facts, mm -hmm. like the movie he did, Dunkirk, which was a great movie, and I'm really interested to see what he does with the movie, and he's probably one of the only directors I would trust with a movie like this. And... Even the buildings in the trailer, when they're inside and they're in the labs of Los Alamos, it looks and feels <laughs> like Los Alamos National Lab because those buildings haven't changed um, or very little since they were built. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the great things about it is I really feel that, you know, it feels right just from the trailer. But, mm -hmm. you know, this could be, you know, honeypotting us in some way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So we've, we've actually found out that we were probably at the Trinity site visiting because you can only visit twice a year. Right. Um, I don't know if they've reopened since COVID, but before COVID, yeah. you could only visit twice a year. Yeah, right? it was October and May, I yeah. believe. Yeah, and the, the landscape looks pretty spot on based, right. based on our uh, experiences being there. And, you were, and we both remember them being just a, how long the line would be. Right. Yeah, we we had left the hotel at a, uh, at about six in the morning and got to Stalin's Gate, and it was already a mile or more of cars backed up to go through the gate. This kind of stuff still garners a lot of interest from people, and right. I think I think the timing of this movie is kind of spot on, mm. you know, because of everything that's been going on in the world too. Right with wars and things like that and concerns of World War III possibly and things like that. You know, this kind of is bringing back those kind of memories and understanding of what is what this could all turn out to be, right? Well, the, the one thing I hope the movie brings out is the science and the, the amount of work that was associated with the development of the Manhattan Project and the types of things that had to be, the types of problems that had to be overcome that normally would have taken years and they were able to do it in, in a lot less time. And the scale up and just the, the level at which everything was done is just something that 
we haven't seen since and probably will never see yeah. um, trying to get all those people focused on the same goal right right and what are what are your opinions of the visuals like the actors and things like that that they chose um, i thought the actor for uh, oppenheimer was pretty much spot on um, very slender uh, I, I assume he's going to be wearing his pork pie hat, which, uh, and uh, the only one I was a little bit concerned about is, is General Groves was described as about uh, six foot two and weighed somewhere around 250 to 275 pounds. And, yeah. I uh, don't think Matt Damien is going <laughs> to. He's going to fit that bill. Yeah. I don't think he is. But. And, and the other question I have is how are they going to bring in Oppenheimer's background, his upbringing and his experience at, in Europe? Uh, he graduated with a chemistry degree from Harvard and then went to uh, Cambridge, but his experience at Cambridge was not very good because they are, that's an experimental, hands-on type of place. And from everything I've read of in Oppenheimer's background, he was not a good hands-on person, <laughs> you a, know, in the lab. Yeah, he was a liability in the yeah, lab. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it wasn't until he got into the theory of quantum mechanics that in Germany that he actually began to really develop. No, that's awesome. I hope, yeah, I'm for three hours, right? The movie's three hours. Hopefully, right. they can touch on everything. But you mentioned you've uh, you're reading a few sources. This this movie is actually based on a book, right? Right. Yeah. That you that you're currently reading. Yeah, I've yeah I've read it in the past, and so I'm rereading it now and going through some things. So I, I'm be interested to see how much of the book is in the movie. And if you're interested in the book that this movie is based on, it's based off American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. So if you're interested in looking for that book, it's also an audiobook because I've looked it up because <laughs> uh, I might start uh, playing it for my commute. Check it out, definitely see, and we'll definitely give you our opinions on whether how well we think Christopher Nolan hit the mark, which... I believe he will. Are there any other concerns or anything uh, you're well, also... Well, it'll be interesting to know how they bring out uh, the latter part where he uh, his security clearance was stripped. Mm, yeah. Uh, and all that that relationship that goes into that. Yeah, and, the kind of fall from grace that right. he went through, right? Because he was, you know, at the top. Right. You know... And and they he really got drugged down, mm -hmm. and yeah, and I think that's what makes this story so interesting. And it was created or orchestrated by people who were originally his biggest uh, proponents and 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 best friends. Yeah, I were I'm really interested as well to see that rise and fall and how deep they go into it. And one of the things that I'm really interested to see is how maybe this movie changes people's perceptions mm -hmm. and or just kind of brings back that the ideas of, you know, the nuclear bomb and things like that. Because right now it's kind of just kind of a word thrown around and you know, I think hopefully this brings back like the true yeah, the true meaning of it. And the one thing I'm worried about really is hopefully this doesn't deter people from like nuclear power because no. we've talked about this before. Like we're able to separate nuclear power from the nuclear bomb, but yeah. the general population doesn't necessarily have that capability because of, you know, I guess lack of education or understanding to separate those two different things. Right. Yeah, yeah, they they are totally different, and uh, but a lot of people just automatically put them together. Yeah, and they think they're, if they have a nuclear power plant in their state, it's going to blow up and it's going to destroy half the state or something yeah. like that. One thing about the trailer that I thought was uh, that was kind of was kind of funny, and hopefully there's a little bit more tidbits and they keep it somewhat some parts light was when um, General Groves 
was asking about, is this going to destroy the world if we do this? Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was, uh, I guess it was uh, Oppenheimer was really upset with Enrico Fermi because he started a pool of whether it would ignite the atmosphere. <laughs> so they were, they were generally concerned about igniting it. But I think it was Hans Bertha that did a calculation that showed that it, it wouldn't. And it's such a, that conversation in that trailer is such a scientist to a non-scientist conversation. Because right. yeah. Groves, he's like, I want it to be zero chance. <laughs> and he's like, well, that's not how the world works. It's a near zero chance. <laughs> and, you know, there's always a possibility. Right. And, and that's, uh, I've had that conversation probably a few times with students and other things. But yeah, it's, it just, it kind of hits home with that conversation. I think we're both excited to see this movie. This is this is pre the seeing the movie, so this we're just kind of giving you our opinions. And when we see it in the next thirty seconds or so, we'll <laughs> we'll be talking about how we enjoy the movie. And we hope you're along with us with that journey. So we just got back. <laughs> we we saw the movie. And uh, we just want to go through our thoughts and just kind of go through this movie with you guys. And first off, what were your thoughts, Dale? Well, first of all, I was relieved that I think in general all the scientific aspect of the movie was correct. Pictures of Trinity site, if uh, having been there, they were spot on. The portrayal of the problems getting to Trinity was accurately described. So in that aspect, I was relieved that they didn't twist anything out of, out of proportion. I was surprised that the movie was done in such a way that you could follow what was going on. I mean, there's so much information there but it did focus on Oppenheimer and, um, and his, his demise, uh, really, uh, yeah. orchestrated by Strauss. Yeah, it's a Greek tragedy in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I thought the movie was great. I thought they did an amazing job. You know, my, th- my hunch was correct. Christopher Nolan did kind of what he always does. And, yeah, I think they stuck to the script. I think they, like you, you've told me, they stuck to the book really well. I didn't see any really glaring kind of issues with it, and and it was it was an emotional movie, which I wasn't expecting it to be. By the end of it, you know, it was I could feel the weight of it all. Yes, the it, it certainly was an anti-war movie. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for younger uh, people who had not lived through the Cold War era. In my case, it, we were talking, uh, my wife and I and several other people were talking about uh, when we were in elementary school, there was a civil defense practice of cover your face and, and get under your desk you know, if there was a possibility of a nuclear attack. And hopefully this movie brought this out to a lot of people and brought this to the forefront because I think nowadays... The idea of nuclear warfare is kind of just like this kind of figment of imagination or is just not taken as seriously as it truly uh, needs to be. Yeah. And um, I think they did a great job of, you know, bringing that back in a lot of ways. Yeah. They did it without showing some of the horror pictures that they could have shown mm-hmm. uh, as a result of... Uh, of uh, Hiroshima and mm-hmm. Nagasaki. Yeah, there were glimpses. There were glimpses. Right. But I think they, they definitely did it in a tasteful way right. um, without trying to scare too much. But again, it was right. about Oppenheimer and not necessarily the after mm-hmm. effects of the bomb. Yeah. But overall, I think if you haven't seen the movie yet, I would say go see it. It doesn't feel like three hours. No, um, no. <laughs> I, th- I think we were talking that we've been in research talks that were 30 minutes that felt longer than that movie and i think the pacing of it you know the timeline kind of jumping 
Right, being helped. being told from more or less uh, Oppenheimer's memories mm -hmm. over over his uh, early years and then of the uh, later years. It just keep even though it's it's not a Marvel movie. There's not a lot of action. It just, but the movie feels like it's going full speed, and you're and you're just in it. You know, there's a couple slow points, I think, but for me, I felt like I was in it. And maybe that's just me being a radio chemist <laughs> and being more invested in it. But, you know, for me, I thought, yeah. you know, it, it, it was a great movie. Okay, so, you know, most people want to hear if they got anything wrong. And, you know, we don't want to hold you guys too long. So I'll let you go first. Okay. What do you think they got wrong? Well... Not necessarily wrong, but was a little hyped, and that was with the apple and Niels Bohr. the The apple is a in the book. The apple is for his um, supervisor Bracken, Bracket, and but. The way it was portrayed in the in the movie is that Niels Bohr had picked up the apple, the poison apple, and and Oppenheimer knocked it away. That that was a little play on on that system. The one that I saw specifically was the uh, story. Uh, it had had someone in a barber's chair reading the New York Times about fission, and then jumping out of the barber's chair and racing to the, uh, to the uh, lab in, at Berkeley and announcing fission and, and Oppenheimer to Oppenheimer. And Oppenheimer immediately says, well, theoretically it can't happen. And then a little bit later, after, after seeing that it does happen, and that was a good demonstration to mm -hmm. see those large uh, uh, oscilloscope peaks. Um, then, but the the person that this really happened was to Luis Alvarez and mm -hmm. not Lawrence. And in the movie, it was sort of led you to believe it was Lawrence who yeah. did it. Uh, and uh, Luis Alvarez, who was also on the faculty there, and he went to his graduate student who would have discovered fission if he had known what to look for. Yeah. <laughs> so that that was the only one that I really saw was a little bit of a stretch. The, their timing on the amount of plutonium available when they gave that talk and Los Alamos is mm -hmm. probably out. Um, yeah, when they were putting the marbles right. in, the, in the yeah, yeah. The, the timing and the ramp up of that I thought was a little bit not as yeah. within timeline right because right? yeah. when they started making plutonium it was like well was the, their first the first amounts came from the Clinton mm -hmm. uh, works in January of 44 and the and it wasn't until January of 45 they got anything from Hanford that brings up one of the things that I saw, and I could be wrong, but the Hanford site, when he was talking about how they were going to orchestrate the design, the, where the labs were going to be, how it was going to be all centralized towards New Mexico and things, mm -hmm. they mentioned Hanford site. But at that time, I thought Hanford was not even a thought yet when they were yeah. initially talking about Los Alamos. Right. That was, I think that was done before they even had uh, the uh, CP1 in Chicago, and, the, and they knew that you could build a, a nuclear reactor. Yeah, and that's, that's not true, right? Yeah. But, yeah. but that's, again, we're, I think, we, we, like we said, we're, we're kind of nitpicking here yeah. with what's wrong. Um, but, yeah, the Hanford site wasn't established until after they discovered, figured out that in Chicago... Um, how to produce the plutonium on yeah. a much larger scale. Right. And uh, that was one of the things I saw, and I was like, ah, that's kind of off, but, you know, I can't, again, I, yeah. we're, we're, we're picking at straws right now. Um, and for me, I guess we talked about it, but the compartmentalization. I didn't know that the compartmentalization... I thought that was wrong. The movie had it wrong. I thought it was much more strict at Los Alamos. But you were telling me no, that it was more free like that. Uh, from my understanding, um, 
they started with a Robert Server, and they sort of did a little bit of that in in the movie where uh, there's they never even introduced the the Robert Server mm-hmm. uh, was giving the talk, and they were, that was the case of where Oppenheimer came by and said, "Don't use the word bomb, use gadget." Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, that was a talk given to all new. In, in inductees, uh, not really inductees, but new. Kind of. They kind of yeah. mentioned it was like a cult kind of in Los Angeles, yeah. so maybe a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so when you initially came on site, that was given to you. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that sort of shows compartmentalization went... Out the window. Yeah. But were they actually calling it plutonium? Oh, um, no. At the time. Um, they they had several code words mm-hmm. and and I don't know what was they were probably calling it forty nine mm. and I know that uh, at Chicago they called it copper <laughs> because there were several times where they had to say honest to God copper to mean they really wanted copper yeah <laughs> <laughs> but they they would just say copper they were referring to plutonium. Yeah, because I was waiting for him because he said, call it Gadget. And I was waiting for him to say, also, don't call it Plutonium, call it, you know, something yeah. else. I was waiting for that moment but because, yeah. uh, you know, they were trying to keep that a little bit more secretive. But I guess, and maybe in Los Alamos, they were a little bit more cavalier with their information. Well, the people living there were pretty much stuck behind the fence. Yeah. <laughs> really. Mm-hmm. Um, although... Um, you know, they would get, I think they had, they could go down to Santa Fe once a month, maybe. Wow. And that's it. They couldn't go anywhere else. So they were there for those two mm-hmm. years in Los Alamos. That was, that was it. Yeah. And I wish they would have shown more of the ramp up of the production of the isotopes. Mm. Right. Because that was, that was such a great endeavor of going from micrograms to now kilograms in the span of months, a year, yeah, maybe, yeah. 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 So it was one of the greatest like ramp-ups in production mm-hmm. history, really. Right, yeah. And I thought they were going to show that with the marbles um, because they were like trickling them in, and I thought one day they were going to walk in and they were just going to dump a bunch in and show that yeah. there was a big ramp-up once Hanford got going and things like that. Yeah, and, the, and they didn't make a... And in my mind, enough emphasis on the implosion device that, mm. and why they were testing the implosion device, but they didn't test the gun device. Yeah, yep, that's the one thing. Yeah, they never mentioned um, why they never tested the uranium. And they knew it was going to work, right? <laughs> they just, they, they, all, all of the math and everything showed that the gun device was always going to work. And they didn't need to test it. Even though the math showed that the implosion device may not work. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and, and also, the implosion device having to trigger all those explosives to go off exactly at the same time sounds kind of trivial now with all the technology and, and electronics we have. But back mm-hmm. then, that was not a trivial thing. That was an extremely difficult task just for the explosives. Right. Right, um, yeah. To be timed like that. Okay, so again, we're, we're nitpicking a little bit, but there was not a lot wrong with the movie. If anything, you can really call wrong. Um, again, we think they did an amazing job. Okay, so if you don't want to hear too many spoilers, if you haven't seen it, maybe stop listening at this point because I think we're, we're going to start going through the timeline and really talking through a lot of these thoughts about and how we thought they were portrayed and what we thought was good and maybe what we thought they could have done better. So, spoiler alert, stop listening if you don't want <laughs> if you don't want any uh, spoilers at this point. Okay. So, from the beginning, we talk we you mentioned the apple. There was also I thought there were thoughts of like it didn't actually happen, he only thought about it. Is that well, true? Well, that 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 seemed to me one of the ways that it could have been interpreted is that this uh, he was upset with uh, Brackett, who was the instructor in the lab where he was, because he 
he wanted to go hear Niels Bohr, and Brackett told him, no, you've got to stay here. Mm -hmm. So I could visualize him seeing, oh, I've got cyanide, and and this is his apple. Yeah. But then, uh, then later, when it was Niels Bohr picked up the apple and was about to eat it, and yeah. he knocks yeah, it, it away. So artistic liberty, let's yeah, say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you know that could could very well have been a dream. Yeah. Yeah. And um, but uh, the one thing that was very evident is his his poor situation in ca- at the Cavendish Labs. Mm-hmm. At this point, you know, here is you know he got to work for Rutherford's group. You know that that would be sort of ideal, and he was having a very poor uh, experience there. And it wasn't until he got into the theory and the quantum mechanics, which is what Bohr told him to do, uh, that he sort of emerged yeah. out of that group. Yeah, and then and they showed really how bad he was in lab because by all accounts he ha- he had <laughs> was not good with his hands, right? Um, which is kind of crazy to think about that you know he was a little bit clumsy in the lab. Yeah, and. Um, one of the things that I really liked was how they portrayed an idea, mm. an idea festering in your mind and growing and growing until, you know, had dreaming about it, thinking about it all the time. I think any scientist can say they've had, maybe I think it was dramatized, but I think any scientist can say they've had an experience like that with an idea, with an experiment that, you know, they've mm. always thought about my students have told me they've dreamed about some of the experiments <laughs> that we've had that we've been doing and things yeah. like that. And I've had dreams and I've had somewhat nightmares you might call <laughs> because, you know, uh, I don't know if you've ever had this dream, but a lot of radio chemists or have this dream is it's a dream where you go into a, a hot lab with no gloves or a hot hood and you're mm. touching mm. radioactive material without gloves. Mm. Um, I've had that dream and I know of uh, no. quite a lot of other people that have had no. that dream working with Mm. Californium and things like that without gloves is a big no-no. But, um, yeah, yeah, I loved that, you know, that buildup of an idea and thinking about it eating at you and, you know, you can't shake it and it really grows. The the one thing that, that was a little bit lacking in that early part was the, his learning of how the Jewish people were being treated Mm. And there was just one or two comments where I've got to help my colleagues that are escaping from Germany. Yeah. Um, and, and that was really one of the things that I think was a driving force for him to get involved in the atomic, uh, the Manhattan Project to begin with. And that may have, could have received a little bit more emphasis. And also Izzy Rabin, um, that friendship kind of came in and, and, and out. And as one of the students that went to see the movie with us said he, he really needed subtitles to identify the various scientists that were involved, which it was hard to keep them straight if you were trying yeah. to. Yeah, if you, if you haven't read the book or you don't know much about the story, keeping all the names straight and knowing who's important and who really played a big role that maybe just had a little bit of screen time um, was very hard, especially with the bouncing back and forth. Yeah. Um, I agree. There was points where I'm like, who is that guy? I know he's important. I can't remember his name now. And I got kind of lost a little bit with yeah. the names as well. I think yeah, that's something I wish was a little bit better. The, the time at Los Alamos was pretty much, I mean, the picture of uh, bathtub row. And then I I really thought Kitty would have said, oh, we have a bathtub. No, she says, we'd have no kitchen. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, Slight oversight. <laughs> yeah. Well, they ate in Fuller Lodge. And um, the pictures of Fuller were what you see pretty much today. I thought it it was good. And even some of the portrayal of the lab, and I don't know how they mocked them up, but yeah. they they look similar to what was has been described mm-hmm. of Tech Area One in uh, some of the other books. And you can still see the initial, the first guard gate 
in Los yeah. Alamos as mm-hmm. well. So if you yeah. ever are in New Mexico yeah. and you yeah. want to see the first guard gate, you can go and take pictures yeah. at that, it. That has been preserved, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things. Well, you can say a lot of those buildings have been preserved because they're still working in some of them. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, the the other the one thing I I thought that they missed was to show a picture of the original road that you had to go on yeah. to get up there, and there are pieces of that you can still see mm-hmm. as you you climb the hill. If you ever in Los Alamos, the main road to get to the that initial guard gate, it's on the edge of a mesa. It's going up the edge of a mesa. So right. that was the same. And and as you're going up there, you can go you can see off to your left a small, small road. The one thing that the video or just being on screen does not give New Mexico justice is the vastness Mm -hmm. and the, the, like the, you know, it's called the land of enchantment. And if you ever go out there, just the vastness and just how far you can see the mountains and how they're so in your face and the beauty of it, it's really hard to capture that. They did a good job, but it still doesn't do it. Yeah, we never had a shot of the San De Cristo Mountains. Yeah. There was never a good shot of that. Mm-hmm. I, I remember when I was there in March, they were snow-covered, and so in the mornings with the sun, it was really a beautiful sight. And then um, also the Valle Grande, uh, there was no shots of that. You've only been on the East Coast or the East Side of the U.S. Please go out to New Mexico. Go out to that part of the Southwest. It's it's beautiful. One thing before we go on to past his early life, they never mentioned that he came from money. Right. Right. That, that never was a big deal, which is kind of you know I think it would. It's not necessarily an important point, but. I think it's something that also needs to be said, mm-hmm. um, especially if you look into more of his history, mm-hmm. um, that he did come from money, and you know maybe that gave him the freedom to be as free-thinking as he was. Um, I thought they were going to mention maybe something. Uh, maybe he was going to drive yeah. a nice car or something. But <laughs> Yeah, well, his education was private schools, mm-hmm. and he went through Harvard in three years with a chemistry degree. So, the, that that could have played a role, but yeah, I thought they were going to mention it. But you know, it's not a lot of people. I thought before. I think you told me that it came from money. I thought he was just you know like, no. just a regular guy coming from New York or something. <laughs> you know, his family. You know, was hardworking. Um, I'm sure they were hardworking, but you know, it is it is kind of an interesting thought. Okay, so we get through his early years, and then he starts to blossom into this quantum mechanics genius, right? So. How did you think about the build-up to where they approached him to Los Alamos and things um, like that? Well, that also included sort of the the 30s mm-hmm. and also showed his involvement with the uh, Communist Party of America and uh, donating money to the Spanish Civil War mm-hmm. and just his involvement also in the... Uh, unionization of students at Berkeley, which is mm-hmm. what really drove uh, Lawrence crazy. <laughs> yeah, Lawrence was really upset with Oppenheimer that Oppenheimer would even consider that. And they're still unionized. To, like, California grad students are still uni- unionized to this mm-hmm. day. And um, for better or for worse, they're, they're unionized. Yeah. That build up to Los Alamos, yeah, it showed a lot of his communist parties, and we started to see maybe a little bit. I guess we can talk about it now, but his womanizing tendencies. Right. Yeah, and but also his ability to attract bright young uh, physicists, mm-hmm. and his goal when he went there was to create a quantum mechanic or uh, school yep. in the United States. Because there was none there was, before. There had not been. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, he was the father of that in right. the United States. And then some of his best papers were produced in the late 30s, and these were all astrophysical papers that done strictly in theory that in in a lot of cases no one really understood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And there I mean, was no real way to prove it. <laughs> at that point. At that time, yeah. Because, yeah. yeah, he predicted uh, black holes. Right. And, you know, and we just recently got our first photos of a black hole. Not, right. to, not that many years ago. Yeah. And so, which he probably should have won a Nobel Prize it, at some point. It, yeah, it, I've read where if he had lived and been alive when they had discovered um, the white dwarfs and, and been able to show that what his prediction is actually is what has what happened, uh, then he may have been nominated for a Nobel Prize. But yeah. he was... He had by that time had passed, mm -hmm. and he never got a, a Nobel for, I guess, you know, fathering the atomic bomb or anything like that. No. Um, I guess that would kind of be against Nobel. <laughs> His wishes maybe for the prize as well, because well, uh, we all know the yeah. reasoning behind yeah. Nobel's uh, um, struggles. The the one thing um, also that I thought was done well is the, his exclusion initially from the Manhattan Project. And it wasn't until he said, okay, I'm, I'm done with all of this, that Lawrence would allow him in. Yeah, he had to renounce his uh, communism, I guess, or communist... Uh, renounce his support of the, of the Union and yeah. so forth. <laughs> so Groves approaches him. Is it, so Groves actually did approach him, or did he go to Groves? No, Groves came there. Okay. Uh, Groves took over in, I think it was September of 42, um, and he immediately made a trek around and visited the sites. And he, he came to Berkeley because of Lawrence, but he ended up at that point realizing that uh, Oppenheimer was more of a theorist theorist and so he went went to see him and that I think that was the first time they met was Oppenheimer because in the movie they make it seem like he's a great strategist in organizing people yeah. and organizing things is is that true well the thing I remember is when he was appointed leader everybody said he can't run a McDonald's. Yeah. Well, of course, there wasn't a McDonald's there at that time, but yeah. he couldn't run a hamburger stand. Mm -hmm. he, you know, he, he, had, he had no experience with organizing and seeing through a project. One of the biggest complaints about Oppenheimer, and this was one made by Niels Bohr, is that he would come up with an idea, he would sort of publish the idea, but he would never follow through with the idea. Yeah, because he was like, you know, he went to the chalkboard. This is where, you know, the Chicago is going to be, this, like, t yeah. Oak Ridge, Tennessee and everything. And it's all, we're all going to be towards New Mexico. Yeah. It's all going to be centralized New Mexico. And I was like, I, I don't remember that being the case. Because you kind of saw, like, yeah, they were saying, oh, he couldn't, you know, be in charge of a burger stand. But then he's organizing this, this complete, right. you know, buildup of the bomb. So I think we've already mentioned that Los Alamos, they did a great job of representing it. And I think there was one scene that I was, I was like, I think I've been there before that they shot when he was in the woods. This is after uh, Jeannie had passed away. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah, and he's like crying and like that, I, that is in Los Alamos. Yeah. I, I, the only reason I know that is because uh, of rock climbing and the boulder yeah. he was leaning up against, I'm pretty sure I've, I've uh, maybe like yeah. walked up or anything like that. But I was like, that's Los Alamos. They did a great job of showing Los Alamos. Mm -hmm. And I think we mentioned it previously, but so he was, did no one care about his womanizing tendencies or did it ever get him in trouble? Because he, well, he was kind of a homewrecker if, if, we're, if well, we look yeah. at the story. Well, it, um, the FBI obviously knew about it because they had him under surveillance and had passed that information on to the security people. And the security people were ready to take him out and shoot him, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Groves said, he's, he's somebody I need, got to have him. And so 
that was the end of it. When the general talks to a lieutenant colonel, the lieutenant colonel says, yes, sir, and and does it. Uh, And then they did transfer Posh Mm -hmm. to the uh, Allos mission, Mm -hmm. which was uh, the mission to discover what the Germans were doing. Was, Was Posh really that harsh? By accounts, he was, yeah. he was that. Okay. Um, yeah, he was pretty... Um, Severe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, the, the other thing there, uh, when you talk about uh, Los Alamos, is the recruitment mm-hmm. and how difficult it was for Oppenheimer to say, I want you to come, I can't tell you what you're going to work on, and I can't tell you how long you're going to have to be here mm-hmm. and so forth. You can imagine somebody approaching you, hey, yeah. I need you, to, need you to come work on a project. Can't tell you what it is right now. Yeah. but I would have it with the caveat of, can I leave at any time? <laughs> and they would say no. Um, yeah. But and I think a great line was uh, when they were on the train. And he was like, you know we could do this faster if we flew. And he was like, "We're too important. It's too risky." And yeah. I thought that was a great. I thought that was a great moment, mm. saying, really showing like how serious they were taking it. Like they weren't even willing to fly, because it right. could have been too risky, um, and they couldn't be. They couldn't be lost, right? Well, and that's why they had all had drivers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they couldn't even drive their own vehicles. One of the things I wish they got into was. Um, the fake names they had for these oh, scientists. Yeah. I think that would have been really showing them kind of wandering around Santa Fe and trying to figure out where this mystery city is, you know. Well, when Niels Bohr uh, came to the U.S., he was assigned Nicholas Baker. Uh, and <laughs> so he, uh, but then the, uh, the, her, his keepers realized that there he was, carrying his satchel, which had on the side of his satchel, <laughs> Niels Bohr. <laughs> yeah, and they, they had all kinds of names for this, the foreign scientists that they were bringing in, and um, I thought that would have been kind of a nice, yeah. a nice moment. Yeah. Um, so I think we brief, we've talked about you know, Los Alamos and the buildup, and I guess we can talk about the bomb, right? Yeah. So... Yeah. What, what were your thoughts about how they portrayed the bomb? Um, well, we already touched on the implosion idea that that really wasn't developed very well mm-hmm. um, and, and why it was such a, a problem, uh, theoretically as well as just building the lenses mm-hmm. for the implosion device and why you, why you needed the implosion device they spent more time sort of talking about the super than they did about yeah about the development of the of the, uh, the trinity yeah so um that that was but again this was a uh, talking about oppenheimer mm-hmm. not about the science yeah. you and i wanted to science the science yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's so. for sure i wish there was a little bit more science but we, i i understand why it was already a three-hour movie they couldn't make it four yeah. Yeah. um and and the build-up and the you know to the the detonation of it and all that seemed you know that from what i can what i've read in in the different books is exactly what happened you know you had 10,000 uh, yards away yeah. Yeah. and th- and so you had three three sites there and then the people on the hill which mm-hmm. was what 10 20 miles away mm-hmm. and, um, and and then the bl- the I thought it was good the way they uh, did the First of all, the the explosion and the light, and then a little bit later came the blast wave. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was, I think, um, knowing Christopher Nolan, he probably did some research on that and also, like, how long it would take for the shockwave yeah. to get there. And that was great, like, the silence and just really seeing the light and everything and waiting for the boom. Yeah. Um, it was great. Yeah. And that was actually, that was not CGI. That was an actual explosion they let yeah. off to simulate the bomb. Okay. Um, 
Oh, well, going back to Los Alamos, one of the things is they must have shot that movie in springtime because of how windy it was. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> if you're ever in New Mexico, when spring comes, the winds come. And the weather and the winds are so predictable. That's why they have the balloon fiesta there because the winds are predictable. So you know every spring the winds are going to come. And it's really, it's it gets even windier out there. And I thought, that was the one thing I, I kind of chuckled at. It was like how windy it was. And I was like, they must have shot this in March if it was this windy all the time. Um, because no, no other time of the year is it that windy. Yeah. And then, of course, in the summertime you have the quote-unquote rain yeah the thunderstorms mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which often come with lightning and no rain yep <laughs> yeah and the weather like the way you know oppenheimer was like the weather it's gonna break at 5 30 just wait for it the weather's gonna break that it's the weather is pretty predictable and yeah. and that's why they love doing you know hot air balloons because you can't control them so you need you need to have very predictable weather yeah. i guess kind of backtrack a little bit sorry um teller the way he was portrayed and how he was more of a thorn in the side and then you brought up the super and how he is there was so much talk of the super the super the super and mm -hmm. i know i kind of understand why it was brought up because that kind of leaned into um strauss which we'll talk right. about later yeah but teller he seemed kind of a thorn in the side of oppenheimer they were initially friends that he had met teller when he was in germany but he was a distraction. And so that's why in that one scene where he puts Teller in his own division and tells Teller, I'll meet with you once a week for one hour. Um, and then Teller's wanting to leave, and he says, no, you can't leave. You literally can't leave. <laughs> you can't leave. Uh, and um, Teller, I think, held a grudge. Mm. And that showed with his indictment of Oppenheimer right. later, right? Um, but we'll get to that, which is kind of a mess in itself in history. But so the bomb, I think, I think you mentioned it. Great representation of it. I love telling the story of the sunscreen. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah the sunscreen and the, yeah. and you you saw them with the heavy uh, the welding glasses, glasses yeah. and the welders glasses yeah. and and then. The one, the two, I can't remember. It was two or one that didn't put on glasses, and no, he man. was blinded for yeah. a certain period of time. But he got his sight back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I wish they would have played that up more. They yeah, were like oh, it's gonna block the UV. This. <laughs> it's like okay, yeah. sure, uh, yeah. Um, oh, another great line when they were saying it was like when they were asking if ten thousand yards is far enough. Yeah. He was like, well, it's based on your calculations. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought that was a a great a great moment. So the bomb, and then comes the big question, should we use the bomb? Right. Right, and that meeting they were in, right, with the higher-ups, I guess, and they were trying to decide which city they were going to do it in. Do you think that conversation was as light as it was in the movie? I, you know, I haven't done a lot of reading in that area, and so I, I would imagine that the decision to use it was already made by higher-ups, and it was simply a matter of picking out a target. You know, he was like, I don't want Kyoto because Kyoto is, I vacation right. there. It just, was, I was, yeah, it was sec Secretary Stinson. Yeah, Stinson. yeah, it just, you know... You know, and maybe it was, you know, I think it, it really took, I think maybe it showed the politicians and how far removed they are from, they didn't see that explosion. They didn't no. see, they don't understand the devastation that these scientists knew was going to come. And so the reasoning that um, they always used is it was, it was going to save American lives. It was going to save Japanese lives mm -hmm. because the fighting was so fierce in the Pacific. Yeah, I know it's a touchy topic for a, a lot of people. No. But yeah. what are your thoughts on the use? Of, well, and maybe you put it in more context. Uh, my dad was in the Philippines and he was training for the invasion. Mm. So what can I say? Yeah. Anything that got him home is, is 
very much fine with me. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and I, I think it did save lives because of understanding Japanese culture and things, they weren't going to stop. And it's like if someone invaded the U.S., would we stop? Mm. You know, how hard would we fight? Yeah. Right? And, you know, it's hard to see another way of that war, that war ending. And the closer you get to Japan, the harder it's going to be. And like you said, there was no question by the U.S. If you asked any U.S. soldier then, right? any military general, there was no question. Uh, and I've actually gotten to speak with some people from Japan, older people, and their understanding. And from what they tell me, their first thing they think about is they woke the bear. They understand they attacked the U.S. They knew they understand there had to be retaliation. They understand the first bomb being dropped, the devastation. Um, I'm not sure exactly on the timeline, but how much time was there between the first and the second bomb? It wasn't that far apart, no, right? It was no. maybe days. Yeah, I think it was days. And they think, from their perspective, obviously, these people I spoke with, they weren't generals or anything or had family of generals, but right. the use of the second bomb they, they view as unnecessary. And maybe those few days weren't enough time for them to... They were still sifting through rubble. People literally disappeared yeah. from the planet in a lot of ways and they didn't understand they they don't necessarily agree with this second use but in the movie their justification was we have to show them that we can do it again yeah and 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 i kind of understand that justification but you know hindsight's always 2020 right and it got the end result that they wanted right and which was bring bring American soldiers home, save American lives, and at the end of the day, save a lot of Japanese lives as well. And they didn't target the biggest populated city in Japan because they knew the devastation. Hmm. Okay, so I guess now we can get into the politics that, that kind of plagued Oppenheimer the back half of his career yeah. and life. Well, the, the biggest thing, Oppenheimer was not wanting to get into an arms race. And so that's why he sort of downplayed the development of the super. And as being on the Atomic Energy Commission, he was able to uh, slow that research down, although uh, Truman made the decision that they were going to go into that but yeah. he I think Oppenheimer felt that the American people did not understand the the implication of building bigger and better bigger and bigger bombs yeah yeah they didn't understand the that you're kind of antagonizing the other to do the same Right. And and there was a line in the movie where it's, what's the difference if we drown in 1,000 feet of water or 10,000 feet of water? What's the difference, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was kind of maybe the justification that a lot of them used. Right. And something they didn't get into was, like, the testing of H-bombs and things like that. And, no. And the no. negative effects that had on a lot, of, a lot of different things. Right. And with underground testing, atmospheric testing, testing in the ocean... The, the great miscalculation they had. Oh, uh, little, <laughs> and, little island yeah. no longer exists. Yes, yeah, Bikini Atoll. Um, was that the one they miscalculated? Um, it was one of the the super. Yeah, and yeah. It was the miscalculation with lithium, um, I believe. But, yeah. And it destroyed half of a Navy fleet. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, they never got into those effects. I think a visualization or maybe a comparison would have been kind of nice to show, I guess, a more modern use mm. of a nuclear weapon. The, they, it was already so long. Well, I think um, the one thing the end of the movie goes into is his um, is the hearing that was mm -hmm. done. And it wasn't really a... It was a political hearing, 
not a, a judicial hearing. So the, the rules that you and I are familiar with in terms of uh, evidence and so forth were thrown out the window. Mm -hmm. It was basically a kangaroo court, one-sided. We're going to... We're not going to give you his, your clearance back. <laughs> right, yeah. By all accounts, this was all orchestrated by Strauss. Right, even when, though he wasn't... He, he wasn't a scientist, per right. se. But he was the one that gave all that information to the prosecution. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, the defense was not allowed to see any of it because it was all classified. classified. Yep. And Oppenheimer simply allowed it to happen. He basically, and this was portrayed in the movie, he basically was sacrificial. And the backstabbing of Teller, even though they had a, a tough relationship, you know, even him going back on him in those hearings. Mm -hmm. Were there any other scientists that kind of well turned their back on him or stabbed him in the back? No, he pretty much had a... a support there the the way that committee or that hearing worked is like when they put groves to the question okay would you clear him now you know taking it out of, totally out of contact and of course he had to say no, no. i wouldn't have cleared him yeah. and i think that was the same with several other people who were supportive of him but the way the politics were mm -hmm. arranged and the question asked. Yeah, no, it was definitely not fair. <laughs> it was not a fair fight. But, you know, I think there were always his supporters that stuck with him. And you can see some of that support. And his wife, even though from his transgressions, she still had his back. And I, I thought that was yeah. beautiful. And... Um, you know, not shaking her, her not shaking Teller's <laughs> hand at the end of the movie. I heard some yeah. some nice uh, a little, kind of small cheers in the <laughs> in the in the crowd yeah. when that happened. Did they ever mend their relationship? I I'm not sure. He seems like a forgiving guy, though. Yeah, you know, he continued to lecture through it, and even though there were some places that he was not accepted. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, when that happened, there were large protests. But, yeah, it, it sort of took the fire out of, his, out of him. To have done your job and do it, done it well and done it for your country and then all that be put in question, mm -hmm. you know, would, I think it would kill anybody. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can only, yeah, it was just a, such a big fall from grace and for it to be orchestrated by someone who was jealous and, you know, and maybe for no reason. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's at least the last part of the movie shows that they weren't even talking about Strauss, Einstein, yeah. and, and, and mm -hmm. Oppenheimer. So was that conversation real between Einstein and Oppenheimer at the lake? Or what do you think that was for poeticness? I think it, it, it logically could have been real because... Mm -hmm. Einstein was the, the sort of the birth of the baby with E equal MC squared, and Oppenheimer is the taking that equation and showing that what yeah. happens when you do that. Mm -hmm. So and they did have a relationship. Yeah. And like he said, he's like I already know him, <laughs> kind of thing. And also, Strauss's ego was on display in the right. movie, and. I think that kind of it really shows how many egos there are in science. Well, and I didn't catch the the phrase that Oppenheimer used to sort of mock him about exporting, exporting isotopes. isotopes. He said something. It's like it's like as if we exported beer and they would be able to make a bomb out of it or something like yeah, that. It yeah, was it was a rather it was a rather uh, you know. Nowadays, that's nothing, but I guess back then, I guess he took it very personally. Um, well, clearly. Yeah, <laughs> clearly he did. Yeah. And he, you know, and after his, he felt he was, that Einstein was ignoring him mm -hmm. or, you know, putting him in. And after that, then he was looking for anything. Anything to... To get back at... Get back at him and... 
And, you know, unfortunately, in science, there can be a lot of egos. There can mm -hmm. be a lot of that. And, you know, a little bit of that's on display. And, you know, ideas get stolen. You know, people get scooped. It's, uh, unfortunately, it can be a dirty game sometimes. Well, uh, yeah. And, uh, but I think, you know, the, the movie did a good job of, as I said, sort of take that, that committee hearing sort of took the life out of him. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah. Uh, even though he lived for almost another 10 years. Mm -hmm. Final conversation where we finally get to see what, hear what he said to Einstein. You know, I think that was a great way to yeah. sum up the movie. Yeah. And, you know, bring it all home and, you know, put the weight of it all into that one scene was, I think it was great. And they mentioned a couple of times in the movie, you know, he gave us the ability to destroy ourselves and, you know, what are we going to do about it? And that's the big question that we kind of are still trying to answer. And oh, today. Yeah, and hopefully we can figure it out <laughs> for everyone's sake. Well... In summer, in my summary, I'd say uh, it is well worth your time. You really don't. I I did not feel like it was three hours of a movie. I was in. Yeah. I was focused mm -hmm. for the entire time. I was in it. Yeah. I was. Yeah. I feel totally the same way. If go see it, go see it. I'm gonna probably go see it a second time. But so. We went to the theater with a few people. Last thing, I know. Um, and we oh. asked them to send us questions. Okay. And so we have a couple questions. And if you have any questions after this episode, if you're still with us, these episodes are going to start being put on YouTube. So <laughs> once these are on YouTube, you go into the comment se section. If you ask questions... And we'll try to get as many questions at one point, and maybe we'll have a Q&A at some point as a podcast. Okay. So if you if this is going to be on YouTube, go in the comment section, ask questions if you have any, and we'll try to address questions um, as we can. Um, but some of these questions that were asked, I had a student email me. They asked about why wasn't Geiger counters used, heard th more throughout the movie. Um, to put this question into context, they took our radio chem class where there's always Geiger counter noise going on. There's always um, monitoring any radio lab or rad lab you go into. There's always Geiger counters going off. There's always a beep. You got to get, you got to learn to love that, that sound. Most of the old equipment was visual and it had these vacuum tubes that went around and lit up uh, one to 10. And so you would have a series of those tubes and they would <laughs> you know, uh, you would see the lights flickering, and uh, so, and they weren't m nice, small, handheld Geiger counters uh, at that point in time. Yeah, they were much larger because they were based on vacuum tubes, mm -hmm. and uh, and the technology wasn't there to build these ha nice handheld ones. Yeah, yeah, and I, that's uh, I never that's a question I would have never thought of because I'm like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, they're big machines. They're not. It's not like it is today. That was a great question by <laughs> by my student. Another question was, um, I guess I'd never thought about this question. Maybe because we I know the history about it, but they were like, did they use a less amount of plutonium because they were so little in the in the test of plutonium no they used the they used um, the whole thing because yeah, it had they, to go critical yeah um, but that was i think that was a fair question because people you know it's they make it seem so precious and it was that maybe they would use less than necessary but no they had to use all of it yeah and if we can if we want to go into the science about it we'll talk about that in a later podcast we'll go more into Manhattan Project more into the atomic bomb when we go a little bit deeper but yes they had to use a full amount of plutonium for that experiment right I don't know if we mentioned why they didn't test the uranium bomb uh, basically because they were certain that it would work and the it used a gun mechanism where it shot a subcritical piece into another subcritical piece uh, to make a, a critical mass, they were certain that it would work. 
Yeah, and the math proved it. And like, to me, that still seems a little crazy <laughs> that they knew it would work, but the science all backs up, it all checks out, and you just gotta get to go critical. And is it also true like the that uranium's criticality event was like slower, that it happened slow enough that a gun right. mechanism would work, but plutonium was too fast right. or too ener more energetic. No, no, the plutonium, it was the spontaneous fission neutrons mm -hmm. that were given off by plutonium-240. That was a small contaminant in 239. Got you. And so it would be brought together, but there were enough spontaneous uh, neut uh, neutrons from spontaneous fission that it would basically start to work and then fizzle. Mm. So it would start blowing itself apart before it can really get going. Before it really got small enough. Yeah. This is the last question from people, from our students. They asked, how big of an explosion would it take to actually ignite the <laughs> atmosphere? <laughs> oh. Probably big enough that it would destroy the world, so would it wouldn't really matter, <laughs> like, kind of. It's uh, such a small possibility. Right, um, and you have to realize that the, the amount of fission that took place is not 100%. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember exactly what they said, but I think they only had a, like 20% fission yield. And so we're talking about a very small uh, area that act, the reaction, the fission actually undergoes, and then it basically blows everything apart so mm -hmm. that it stops. And so that the calculations that uh, I believe is Hans Bertha did were when he did his final calculations, he showed that it would not happen. I think that was a great scene as well. With, uh, I, I went zero. Yeah. <laughs> but, okay, well, thank you for listening. Um, again, if you have any questions, these will be put on YouTube. Get into the comments section. We'll try to answer when we can. And look out for more episodes of the Rad Lab Podcast brought to you by Tennessee Tech University. And if you would like to learn more about Tennessee Tech and more about us, it'll be in the bio. Thanks for listening. <laughs>